Hello, and thank you for joining today's webinar, focusing on protecting your crypto and wealth planning for digital asset investors and entrepreneurs. We have a wonderful program in store for you today. But before we begin, a few housekeeping items. For the benefit of all participants, attendee lines have been muted. Should you have any questions that you would like to submit during the event, you may submit them through the chat box at the bottom of your screen. And if you have questions after the event, please email speakers directly or through our group email address, familyoffice at dentons.com. Please note that today's webinar will be recorded, posted on our website, and circulated to all registrants via email after the event. Finally, a reminder that today's presentation is not designed to provide legal, financial, or other advice, and you should not take or refrain from taking any action based on the content of this presentation. With that, I would now like to turn things over to today's first speaker, Edward Marshall, Global Head of Denton's Family Office Group. Over to you, Eddie. Hey, thanks, Meredith, and thanks everybody for joining me today. It should be an exciting opportunity uh, to talk about some uh, two hot areas in, in this space. Uh, before we get started, I do want to give some brief introductions of our speakers today and have them uh, give their backgrounds because I think it'll be relevant to today's conversation. Joe uh, Guagliardo, uh, let's start with you. Right, thanks, Eddie. Uh, Joe Guagliardo, partner in the New York office. Uh, I am a technology lawyer, and what that means is I represent uh, blockchain and crypto uh, clients uh, in commercializing their assets, structuring uh, token and other assets. Uh, as well as uh, representing the investor side, um, uh, those who are interested in investing in blockchain companies and or cryptocurrency assets. Thanks, Joe. Our next panelist today is Howard Nieswander. Howard, give us a little background uh, on yourself. Uh, we're happy to, Eddie. I'm in the uh, Birmingham office. I'm a wealth planner. I've been doing this now for a little over 30 years. And my specialty is working with individuals uh, in basically putting together comprehensive planning, touching on taxes, risk management, and succession, all very critical and key components of digital assets that we'll be talking about today. Thanks, Howard. Adrian Stewart, uh, give us a little snapshot of your background. Yeah, thanks, Eddie. I'm Adrian Stewart. I work in the downtown New York office. Um, I work on um, a range of matters relating to digital assets from a regulatory perspective, my background at J.P. Morgan Chase, and a transactional perspective, uh, crypto companies that are engaged in uh, offerings and M&A transactions and other types of financing transactions. Thanks, Adrian. Uh, and our last panelist, Rich Williams. Rich, uh, give us uh, a bit of your professional background, if you would. Sure, thanks. Thanks, Eddie. Uh, my name is Rich. I'm in the uh, New York office. I'm a, a tax practitioner and uh, work with crypto companies um, and investment funds on structuring um, in connection with offerings or um, things of that nature. Excellent. Well, thanks, Rich. And so uh, it's a relevant panel to talk about the areas that we mentioned uh, that we'd speak about, starting with a, a bit of an update on where we see things in blockchain and digital assets uh, in general. Uh, we'll talk about creating an estate plan for cryptocurrency and, and digital assets uh, for, for investors in that space, the tax implications of their uh, important issues around fiduciary and philanthropic considerations as well. So let's get started. Joe, let's start with you. Give us a little bit of a 
history, a brief history, I should say, uh, on blockchain and where we are today. Sure, happy to do that. So I think by now everybody knows um, what Bitcoin is and, and what Ethereum is and, and what cryptocurrency is, right? We've Bitcoin, of course, taught us um, that we can use crowdsourcing, if you will, to manage uh, a database of, of new assets, right? So transactions on the Bitcoin blockchain uh, are managed through mining, um, basically a network of computers that manage it. Um, as it evolved, um, we saw Ethereum and the introduction of smart contracts that allowed um, businesses to essentially build um, uh, use cases and rules, more complicated rules on top of smart contracts. We saw the introduction of the ERC ERC20 token, which is really what all the ICOs were built on, essentially Ethereum uh, token, and then ERC721 tokens, which are the NFTs, non-fungible tokens. Um, and so, you know, where have we gone from the introduction of the, the Bitcoin white paper to the ICO craze in 2017 to now? I think really uh, what's material about where we are today is that the technology has really matured. We're still in very, very early days, um, but the technology and the pipes have matured, um, both the onboarding pipes and the interaction with uh, traditional finance, for example. Um, we're still, I think, looking for the killer app on where, we're, where it's really going to accelerate and sort of we're going to use by consumers every day and by institutional users every day. Uh, I think what we're starting to see, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, is really the killer app right now is decentralized finance, which of course creates all kinds of incredible opportunities for investors. Uh, and the technology and the pipes that are being developed around that, it's really, uh, really amazing where we've come since 17 to now. Um, of course, we're seeing a maturing asset class. It's pretty clear in what's happening in the market. The amount of um, funds, not just from retail investors, but also institutional investors flowing into crypto. Um, and then lastly, I'll just point out in terms of decentralized finance, um, staking is maturing. Yield farming is, of course, um, an asset class and investment opportunity that we're seeing. Um, and NFTs, uh, which obviously are tied to art and have gotten a lot of attention, but really, which we'll talk about in a little bit, where NFTs are going in terms of fractional ownership interests is really exciting and I think really where the future is in terms of how we run our day-to-day -day lives and own assets and, and, and things like that. But Joe, you talked about some of the use cases. I think a lot of those are familiar to folks uh, that are listening and certainly to, into this webinar, um, but beyond smart contracts, beyond cryptocurrencies and, and, and maybe even touching into DeFi a little bit, what are some of the other use cases that you're seeing out there that clients not just in the U.S., but globally are looking at with, with blockchain that are intriguing you. Yeah, so I, I think, you know, when you step back and you look at all of this and say, well, what does it all really mean? What, you know, great, we have, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum and all these other great assets and, and blockchains. We have crypto. What, what, what's really happening underneath all of this? Um, and you hear a lot about Web 3.0. I think really the promise here and all of the really interesting use cases is about democratizing data, democratizing the management of assets, democratizing um, e-commerce. And so what, what we've seen um, in, in the Bitcoin blockchain and Ethereum and all these is that essentially we have, we've crowdsourced the management of data, we've crowdsourced the management of transactions, 
and we have crowdsourced uh, the ability to authenticate transactions and assets. And I think if you look at it that way, um, you sort of, you know, you see through all of the sort of the hype and, and all of the confusing white papers. At the end of the, the day, that's really where the value is. Um, and I still think in terms of, you know, use cases uh, on the enterprise, I think supply chain management makes a lot of sense, um, especially when you start to get different companies um, within an ecosystem sharing data, not personal, not confidential information and confidential data, but data that makes sense to make transactions more efficient. Um, we're starting to see uh, cross-chain functionality, much more mature blockchain now interacting with traditional databases. Um, and I think when that happens and matures, we're going to see a whole new set of opportunities. Um, and then uh, I think generally um, the crowdsourcing for things like um, virtual wireless networks, crowdsourcing for managing, managing voting, uh, crowdsourcing for um, financial instruments and managing um, governance. Uh, all of that really is, I think, the most exciting in terms of uh, in terms of use cases. Really, again, looking through this and understanding what is it really, and it's all about democratizing um, uh, all the assets, whether they're data assets or or governance. That's really where I think the the really exciting use cases are. Uh, thanks, Joe, uh, Adrian. So, I mean, we've we talked about all the great potential use cases. There are a lot of innovation that's happened. A lot of valuation uh, uh, cases and things of that nature on that, but it's uh, there. There are other elements to it, and certainly one of those is the regulatory front and and where things are at. Um, where have you seen um, governments, both the U.S. and abroad, kind of strike that balance between innovation and you know proper and uh, regulation to make sure that investors and others are protected in, in such a new technology. Yeah, I think it's useful to think of digital assets and crypto markets in, in kind of almost two different halves. One is, is Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, which I will label traditional crypto uh, in the sense that the law is relatively clear in the United States and elsewhere what those instruments are um, in their commodities or currencies, they're not securities. There's case law on that. It's settled. Um, the use for Bitcoin as a stored value is similar to gold. Ethereum has the smart contracts feature. Um, there's sort of, you know, I don't want to say it's totally settled, but there's a lot of acceptance at a at a retail level. If you're going to a, an app or um, a, you know, other platforms, and there are regulated institutions who are entering the market for things like custody, clearing, exchanges that are going to be touching those two types of digital assets first and foremost, um, you know, Bank of New York or State Street or um, other types of financial institutions, you know, are not going to be looking at some of the more exotic DeFi instruments of which there are hundreds or thousands. Um, so that's, that's, I think, a, a place where I think many of us probably own those two assets or some combination of them. Uh, it's, it's in a, a relatively safe and secure venue like a Coinbase, a publicly listed company. Um, it's not in a, a kind of wonky or, or clunky app that is housed in Gibraltar or someplace. So there's the one, a lot of the market is there, right? In that sort of traditional area where I think relatively speaking, the regulatory risk is low. And you see some of the, you know, different around the world, you might see or hear about um, 
certain countries declaring Bitcoin illegal or mining in China being shut down. All those things happen. But I think generally speaking, if you're thinking about that half of the market or that it's more than half by value, obviously. Um, but then the rest of the market is in a gray area, particularly in the United States, but also in many other countries where you look at um, you know, any number of different tokens that have come out that are versions of uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum. You know, they're almost copycats. There's altcoins, there's, you know, almost like a joke, like meme coins that come out that pop up. And those are those are very speculative. Everyone should be careful with those assets, right? They, they could all go to zero. Uh, and the current administration in the United States, the SEC and all the regulatory agencies have been very direct in their view of some of these assets, uh, whether it's stable coins or whether it's uh, you know exotic cryptocurrencies, they view those um, as unregistered securities. Um, they did this previously in 2017, where there were a lot of initial coin offerings um, in much smaller scale than now, but there was a surge of interest in some of these um, tokens and coins, which ultimately you know got shut down. Um, and it was a dramatic effect on the market because people were offering these coins as retail uh, investments, essentially, without going through the process of registering with the SEC or otherwise making sure that you have an exemption uh, for a private placement. So that's where we are now. And I think buyer beware on a lot of these assets, not just because they may be volatile, but also, you know, we have, I, I have some clients who, are kind of locked in to assets from you know five four or five years ago that um, you know can't be traded. They're illiquid. Um, so that's that's a that's a real risk. I think when you're looking at investing in this class is you know you want to be able to have it in a, in a secure place. Um, you want to be able to have access to it. Um, and it, if and when the time arises, you want to be able to exit. Um, and so there that, there's some significant risks associated with that. I think. The SEC chairman, the OCC, you know, the alphabet soup of government agencies have made it very clear that um, they, they, you know, anticipate, they've done a lot of enforcement actions and they anticipate more coming in the, in the near future. Thanks, Adrian. I think uh, it makes some very interesting points around the innovation and certainly a short time frame of what's there. And one of the most recent ones, Joe, uh, on that front that, that that's garnered a lot of attention, certainly over the last uh, 12 months has been around non-fungible tokens and NFTs. Um, what, what is it about NFTs and what's the evolution that's there that's generating a lot of opportunities now uh, as, a, as an investment opportunity and why are people looking at that? Yeah, so the NFTs have been around uh, for for some time, as I mentioned, the, the ERC seven twenty one token uh, for non fungible, at least on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, we saw that initially with CryptoKitties. More recently, we've seen it uh, with NFTs tied to artwork and and big sales, and essentially using NFTs as digital collectibles. But I think from an investment perspective, there's really two you know two paths. One is opportunities to invest in NFT platforms themselves, um, whether they're you know, platforms for issuing or, or um, platforms for exchanging NFTs. Um, and the other is the NFTs themselves. And I think um, the latter is really interesting. And, I, and I'm not talking about NFTs um, necessarily that represent collectibles or art. I'm talking about NFTs looking ahead 
where they change um, the way we define e-commerce. Um, so for example, if you start to look at NFTs with traits, um, an NFT is really, I say token, um, that uh, represents a unique set of qualities that has essentially a digital certificate, right? It represents either a digital asset or a physical asset. What we're starting to see now is NFTs with so-called traits, right? So they have NFTs potentially with um, uh, tokens. We have NFTs that are offered that have other benefits that may be sponsored by, I'll give you an example, you know, an airline that may also come with, you know, tickets for a flight and, and, and hotel for, uh, for a place. And so um, we're starting to see dynamic NFTs that interact with the real world and sort of change their behaviors and traits based on what's happening in the real world and the digital world. And then beyond that, when I say e-commerce, I mean fractional ownership interests and essentially using NFTs really to own anything we can imagine, right? Fractional ownership in real estate, fractional ownership in artwork, um, automobiles, I mean, really any kind of asset. Um, and if you sort of look at it that way, it gets really interesting because it allows, um, allows us to tie NFTs to the, to the physical world um, and change the way we do commerce, right? We don't have to run commerce through, uh, you know, centralized um, e-commerce platforms, right? And so those centralized e-commerce platforms may also trade and sell NFTs. Uh, but the NFT is, again, a, it's a digital certificate that represents whatever we want it to represent. Uh, and I think that's where it's getting really interesting. Uh, and certainly investors are, are onto that and looking beyond sort of, you know, uh, digital collectibles as they're yeah and if i could jump in there that's that's why they refer to it as web 3.0 right yeah because if you think about um fang stocks right uh google um i guess it's meta now not facebook yeah. um these are in many ways walled gardens that that were put up on the world wide web as we knew it in the 90s which had no real barriers and now there's all these walled gardens that are controlled by these huge corporations um, Netflix, uh, you name it, right? Web 3.0 and the crypto sort of rationale, the, the reason that people get extremely excited about all this, is you can imagine um, digital um, you know, distributed ledger or blockchain technology uh, not being used for speculative currency tokens, but instead being used to essentially do streaming video, right? To, to disintermediate Netflix from all of its customers. So the, the producers or the content providers could go directly to you know, so you say you don't need YouTube and you don't need Facebook. This is, this is where people start to see massive dis disintermediation in the market and real promise for this type of technology. Yeah, and just to, to add to Adrian's point about um, you know some of the centralized, let's say, video streaming entities, that's certainly an opportunity for them to use NFTs. Yeah. Um, to, to track the sale and licensing of uh, you know of of streaming rights. Uh, to enable them to track and pay um, artists if it's music or um, you know video rights, and so we can see not just in the decentralized world, but even in the decentralized world where it creates efficiencies and the ability to, to essentially track and pay people. And um, you know, I, I think that that's a, a tremendous opportunity even for the centralized um, yeah. entities. And, and it's part of the passion economy or the creator economy. Like in the traditional art world, for example, an artist creates a work. It's sold at a gallery. They get, you know, half of the purchase price or something like that. They never see that. They never get paid on that artwork again, even though it may trade hands many times over a long period of time. 
um, a defining feature of NFTs is a commission to the creator on secondary sales, um, which, you know, if you think about sort of artists who sell something for $50,000 and later become mega famous, um, you know, they can produce more work, obviously, um, which they do, uh, but they don't get what they should get, uh, like you might get on music royalties or other things like that. So the income streams for the creators are there. So one of the areas too uh, that I think we should talk about is certainly around the geopolitical side of this is that uh, the uh, Adrian mentioned walls around these areas. One other one is certainly the geopolitical one and what's been going on in different areas that have of the world that have focused on it and others that have uh, kind of said uh, less positive elements about their views on cryptocurrencies and blockchain as a technology as well. We, with some of the actions, including those in China, we, where, where do you see that kind of playing out? Uh, Joe, I'll start with you on that. Uh, where do you see that kind of playing out? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 with respect to China and, and you know, them shutting down crypto, I, I, they know exactly what's going on. I mean, it, it, decentralized assets and, and decentralized finance is a, is a major threat to, um, to, to cer certainly certain economies. Um, but it's sort of the antithesis of, uh, you know, of centralized government, right? I mean, it's basically, we're talking about sort of using these assets as the ultimate in democracy uh, and crowdsourcing finance and everything else. Um, that, that is a, you know, I, I, I see that China sees that as a threat in, in a lot of different ways. Uh, I think the U.S. does as well. Um, I think the U.S. is taking a slightly different approach, though, than, than China. Um, I think it can certainly have an impact um, on the on the world economy and individual currencies, and 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 there's no doubt that that you know certainly China is watching that very carefully, especially with their plans for their own digital currency. Beyond China, Adrian, are you what are you seeing on the on the global world, global stage? Um, I'm seeing countries. I'm seeing major crypto companies fleeing, obviously. You know, FTX is a multi-billion dollar company, operates almost entirely outside the United States for regulatory reasons. And the founder was in California when he came up with the idea, right? But he went to Hong Kong because he felt like he could set it up out there. That company's recently moved to Singapore, um, which is an avowedly pro-crypto jurisdiction. So globally, for better or worse, there's a bit of a whack-a-mole um, kind of process where uh, different participants in this space feel like, you know, a different jurisdiction may be favorable, Malta or um, Gibraltar or BVI or Singapore, and then the regulatory landscape changes and Malta decides it's in the EU all of a sudden and <laughs> needs to have different KYC rules. And so it's sort of like, you know, you think different, trying to hit that. So the enforcement of different rules on these instruments and these these parties is sometimes hard to track because they are able to move around. Um, but I think there's um, a lot of press about things getting banned in China. Um, and I routinely, uh, there's a friend of mine at, at CoinShares who has a Twitter thread about the number of times that crypto has been banned in China. It's pre pretty much like once a year um, and it doesn't really, doesn't really take. Um, so there is a challenge, I think, to, to centralize governments, but there's also obviously a peril. Um, 
and most of the regulators and, and others will, will point to the dangers associated historically with these types of assets, that they're used for illicit criminal activity, they're used for you know, drug trafficking and, and other types of commerce on the black market, uh, precisely because there's no way uh, uh, often to do KYC or AML or to track these things. So what we've witnessed in the last 12 months, as I mentioned previously, is an inflection point towards institutionalization of these trading activities. And so in every asset class, in every area of the crypto space, the regulated entities are the ones that are growing, that are getting stronger, because the vast majority of capital wants to be in a safe place and with um, parties that aren't you know, gonna get in trouble with regulators. There's a flight to quality, there's a flight to established companies with good compliance. Um, and there's a whole like segment of the crypto space, which is entirely um, about compliance and regulatory compliance and AML KYC um, in the technology space. You know, the online authentication, the kind of keys that you use for authentication um, and identification. That's a whole strata, sort of like the infrastructure of this space. Um, that is in itself, it's a, it's a very interesting asset class. Yeah, and I'll add to that. I think, you know, the pos there, there's no doubt that, that governments around the world are looking at blockchain and crypto as a tremendous opportunity. The challenge that everyone's having, private sector and the public sector, is how do you embrace the technology and allow it, allow innovation to happen, but also protect, of course, your own interests. And obviously, each country has their own interests and how do you embrace it on a global scale um, and allow it to, to, uh, to flourish without impacting your own native currency uh, and or um, you know, impacting um, you know, government and, and general governance? So Rich, one of the challenges is certainly on the, the tax side. Uh, it, investors and entrepreneurs in this space face a, a lot of issues, whether it's unresolved um, tax questions and um, gray areas that are still existing out there. Uh, as part of that, let's break it down a little bit. How does the IRS view cryptocurrencies in general? Sure. So as you noted, um, you know, it's fairly limited guidance that the IRS has issued so far. They issued one notice in 2014 in the form of a series of questions and answers and supplemented it in 2019. Uh, on their IRS website. But the, the key takeaway, I think, is um, the guidance applies to transactions and virtual currencies, which are defined very broadly to encompass most you know, cryptocurrencies that, that we know of today. Um, and essentially, the IRS views virtual currency as property uh, rather than money or a currency you know, that could give rise to foreign currency uh, gain or loss. So. What that means is, you know, the general tax principles that apply to property transactions would also apply to transactions in cryptocurrencies. So if an investor um, used a cryptocurrency to purchase goods or services, that would be a taxable event and they would recognize gain or loss um, equal to the difference of the, the value of the, you know, the, the token that they exchange and their, their cost basis, um, you know, to the extent that uh, an employee or service provider receives uh, cryptocurrency as compensation, that would be considered a uh, compensation income and subject to uh, employment taxes and, and um, report information reporting as well. 
Um, there's a few types of transactions, uh, which Howard, you know, may, may touch on later, which, you know, just like with other types of property would not be subject to tax. You know, some examples are, are gifts of cryptocurrency or uh, charitable, you know, donations of cryptocurrency. Also, um, if you transfer crypto from one wallet to another wallet that you own, then that would not be uh, taxable. <clears throat> So, Rich, one of the issues has been treatment of cryptos and other uh, digital assets, whether it's a commodity or a security. How, how has that evolved? And are, are we seeing any continual ev evolution of that uh, in this new administration and in other places? So, I think you know that's one area where the IRS guidance didn't specifically address, but I think. You know, just using uh, general tax principles, I think most, uh, you know, practitioners probably feel that uh, Bitcoin, for example, would likely be treated as a commodity for federal tax purposes because it's traded on uh, Bitcoin futures are traded on U.S. commodity exchanges and the CFTC has recognized uh, Bitcoin as a commodity. Uh, other cryptocurrencies that are not traded on U.S. commodity exchanges, it's a little bit less certain um, as to whether they would qualify as commodities for federal tax purposes. And the treatment of uh, crypto as a commodity for tax purposes can have a lot of you know, different um, Im implications. Um, there, it, you know, just an example would be uh, if you had a crypto hedge fund that was uh, trading in um, Bitcoin, for example, because it's a commodity, then foreign investors in that fund could, could be exempt from you know, having a US trader business, having, having to pay US taxes because there's a specific safe harbor for trading in commodities, uh, which wouldn't apply if, if you know, they traded cryptos that were not commodities. <clears throat> what about uh, corporate structuring? Issues are there are there some considerations that uh, investors and families can think of as they're trying to uh, you know optimize uh, for their crypto investments? Sure, um, you know one one type of scenario that you know we come across. I've uh, worked with our Singapore colleagues quite a bit on uh, crypto companies that are that are doing um, initial coin offerings and also uh, you know uh, token awards. So. Uh, Singapore is a pretty friendly environment uh, in which to do set up a company to do a issuing, issuance of uh, tokens. Uh, but a lot of times these companies are founded by U.S. Uh, residents or citizens. And so there's a couple issues that come up there. Uh, one is you have to be aware of uh, controlled foreign corporation issues, where if the Singapore company was more than 50 percent owned by U.S. persons, then it would be subject to various um, anti-deferral rules. So the actual sale of tokens by the Singapore company could be taxable to the US uh, shareholders under the CFC rules. Another uh, issue that we try to structure around is to avoid having the company be uh, engaged in a US trader business for tax purposes. Because um, that, that could have you know, pretty, pretty negative uh, consequences given that we don't have a, a treaty with Singapore and certain other jurisdictions, which are also uh, friendly uh, for uh, crypto environments. Um, and then, you know, with respect to awards, which is very, you know, a lot of the entrepreneurs like to give their founders or employees awards in the form of tokens. Um, 
And so it's a little bit different, you know, you know, than a typical stock award. Um, one one issue that comes up from time to time is, uh, you know, what is the value of of the um, you know token when it's issued, and also whether you can make a so-called 83B election for restrict, restricted token award. Um, if you grant the token at a time where you know you, you can't transfer the ownership on a blockchain or it's not you know registered, it's not fully developed, then arguably you know you would not be able to make this 83B election, um, which is you know generally a taxpayer favorable election. <clears throat> what about the issues around mining and staking? Are there things that people should, uh, you know, just broad brush areas to consider around mining and staking from what you've seen? Sure. Yeah, the IRS actually addressed uh, mining specifically um, in their, you know, first notice. And the rule is, you know, if you're a miner and you receive an award um, for mining, that will be included in your, in your gross income, typically it's ordinary income. Uh, you may be, you know, engaged in trader business of mining, which means that the uh, mining award could also be subject to self-employment taxes and, and, and reporting. With respect to staking, that, that's, uh, you know, developed, I think, or became more common after the IRS issued its initial guidance. And so there, that, that is a gray area right now. And, and there's a lot of, you know, arguments, you know, I've seen some creative arguments that uh, you know, people may assert to try to say that a, an award from staking, it, it may be a little bit uh, different um, than a mining award where, you know, you have to, you have to put up property that you own and, you know, the, the award is, is um, you know, basically the, of the same type of property. But I think, you know, the most probably, you know, I, what I would recommend is to report you know, staking awards also as, as ordinary income at the time of uh, receipt. <clears throat> what about lending? It's certainly an area that uh, uh, has drawn some controversy recently, uh, depending on uh, whose angle you're, you're viewing it from. Uh, what are you seeing there on that front? So this again, you know, there's no, no guidance here. I mean, I think people draw an analogy to securities lending there are specific rules, um, you know, in the code, which if you meet certain requirements, um, you know, with respect to a securities loan, you know, usually a short-term loan, you're, you're trying to, um, you know, receive, you receive some fees um, and you can get the security back, um, you know, typically upon demand. But if you meet certain requirements, which essentially are designed to say that you're in the same position as you would have been had the loan not occurred, then that would be a non-taxable disposition uh, for, for tax purposes while you would have to report the, the fee income in the interim. Great. Well, Rich, thank you. And then just pausing here briefly, thank you to folks that are uh, uh, throwing questions into the Q&A. Keep, keep doing it. We'll, uh, we've got time at the end for, uh, for that. So do appreciate the, the questions that have come through uh, we'll try to answer some of those uh, live and, and in, in there as well, but uh, do appreciate that. Let's shift gears a little bit, Howard, and talk about wealth planning and creating an estate uh, plan for cryptocurrency and other digital assets that families are looking at. 
what's the 101? What, what are the basics that families have to consider when they have crypto and, and digital assets on the estate planning side? Basically, what you have to consider, Eddie, is access. Uh, because without access, uh, you have really nothing. It could disappear on you overnight, literally. Uh, so what we always want to do is, number one, have a good succession plan in place. So in the event of incapacity, in the event of death, anything along those lines, make sure that the right people have access to the proper uh, key to uh, open the uh, treasure chest, so to speak. Uh, that could be uh, access to a hot wallet. It could be access to a coal wallet. Uh, it could be a brain uh, wallet. It could be paper wallet. A lot of different ways to look at that. Uh, but also, we also want to make sure that we have proper security measures in place. One of the great things about crypto is it's anonymous. One of the worst things about crypto is it's anonymous. Uh, so you don't have a lot of oversight. So if I name my trusted friend as my fiduciary to take over uh, access to my crypto in the event of my death or incapacity, and my trusted friend decides to access my crypto and go to the Bahamas, there's just not a whole lot I can do about it. Uh, so you wanna have to make sure that there's proper security measures in place. One of the things we always wanna look at though is from a holistic standpoint, because with investors and wealth planning, it just touches so many different boxes. Uh, we're concerned about estate and gift taxes. With the volatility and the appreciation, you can easily find yourself in a situation of an inheritance tax at the end of the day or death tax. Uh, we have to make sure that there's risk management in play because it is property, just like any other property that you may own subject to risk of creditors. Uh, succession, we wanted to make sure, as I mentioned, that there's proper succession in place there. Um, mitigation of income taxation. You know, Rich uh, touched on that for a second, but a lot of really sophisticated planning goes into the charitable side, where we can do charitable remainder trust, charitable lead trust, uh, maybe pour over to a private foundation at the end of the day and really mitigate it from the income tax side as well. So again, you don't want to touch on a lot of different bases and make sure it all gets wrapped up in a nice package. So Howard, what happens when you die to the value of your cryptos? Is it like stock where there's like a step up basis uh, in basis? Are there exceptions to that rule? How, how does that work? Well, that, that's a very good question. You typically have a step up in income tax basis to fair market value. Now, what is fair market value? That is uh, still kind of a uh, indescribed, undescribed term. Uh, a lot of times we feel like that we can go to the rules and regulations on value in stock, and we'll look at the high and low average on the date of death. But there's really nothing that says you have to do that. And don't forget that virtually every transaction in crypto has a date and time stamp. So do we really have to wait for opening and closing at the date of death? Can we do something a little bit more precise? Uh, what about the exchanges out there? Do we have to use one exchange or can we average all the exchanges? Uh, that makes you know, perhaps a little bit more sense. Uh, then you also have the rule that if your crypto has decreased in value, let's don't forget what goes up can come down. Well, then you lose your loss ability. Uh, your uh, basis at death becomes fair market value and your loss goes away. 
That's why we want to be so very careful in our planning. Even when we're doing gift planning and getting it out of uh, someone's estate where you don't normally get a step up in basis, we always want to have a toggle switch there to pull it back into the estate if necessary from a basis standpoint, if it's not going to foot fault us on the death tax side. So again, a lot of flexibility, a lot of sophisticated planning needs to go into this because you need the most flexibility you possibly can because this is the most volatile asset class out there. So one of the areas that you mentioned uh, specifically is that uh, of having an understanding of who's gonna be in control and that, that piece of it. What about the control around beneficiaries, right? So our retirement account's pretty easy to set up who's gonna be the beneficiary of everything uh, from there in, in a general sense. How do you do that? And what have you seen clients do well on that front when they're talking about their cryptocurrencies and other digital assets? Well, unfortunately, that's not been something that has been figured out yet. Uh, to my knowledge, there's not a group out there that really offers uh, beneficiary designations on crypto. Uh, so what we have to do is do a lot of workarounds. And uh, a lot of times we like the idea of going ahead and putting it, say, into a trust uh, during lifetime as opposed to letting it pass as a part of an estate. Don't forget it's property. So if it passes a part of the estate, you have to have probate. You have to go through a lot of hoops. Uh, you have to have a lot of red tape. So a lot of times at a minimum, we'll use a revocable living trust to avoid that, uh, trying to make sure that we have, again, the ability to have access and administration. Uh, don't forget that because of the fact we're moving into a trust, now we have to have proper provisions in the trust to allow for the crypto to be, number one, acquired, and number two, even more importantly, maintained. Uh, we have to overcome the prudent investor rules uh, that really require for sales uh, and to uh, allow for keeping a concentrated position and not allow for diversification. Again, if it's sufficient enough, which a lot of times it is, uh, from an estate and gift standpoint, we may want to use irrevocable trust and completed gifts and things like that to get it across the line, to get it out of the death tax system. So all that kind of ties into having to kind of cobble together a pseudo beneficiary scheme where it's just not as easy as putting a name on a 401k account. Well, Howard, you mentioned trusts and one of the areas to, to consider on trusts is the trustee and uh, their understanding of and comfort with digital assets and cryptocurrency. How have you seen clients work with that issue and uh, trying to select a trustee? Uh, a trustee is that working with a uh, a more of a commercial uh, and a professional trustee versus family members? How, how how have you seen that work out? Well, it, it kind of takes the the whole gamut. Uh, a lot of times you look for maybe a family member or a friend, and a lot of times they have no clue as to what crypto is. Uh, they can barely spell it, much less deal with it. Uh, so you have to have things like a roadmap where they can access it based on the roadmap. And then you also have to almost have an operator's manual where you lay out in a lot of detail where they can basically, you know, use the uh, crypto, how they can manage it, how they can invest it, how they can deal with it, because it's so foreign uh, to most individuals. 
on the professional side, a lot, unfortunately, of institutional trust companies don't really want to have anything to do with it. They're afraid of it. Uh, they don't like the liabilities. So what we're forced to do is to go to some of the more progressive states like Nevada, South Dakota, and particularly Wyoming uh, to utilize trust companies there because they've gotten much more comfortable with it. Uh, in fact, Wyoming is typically our go-to state uh, for institutional trust companies because they've got like 24 very friendly crypto laws in the books. They've become kind of the crypto friendly uh, state in the country. They're really after uh, this type of business and the fiduciaries there are really uh, easy to work with. But we'll also what we have to do is we have to use directed trust so that I have to direct my family member or my friend or my business associate or another institution to handle the crypto because most trust companies, again, are not in that business and don't want that liability exposure. So we're right back to having to have someone that's educated, that has access and is knowledgeable about what's going on in order to deal with it on a trust standpoint. Thanks, Howard. And, and Joe, uh, and, and to Howard, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, the protection of assets uh, in addition to the trust, but also on, on other elements such as wallets. Uh, maybe Joe, you can give us an example or give us a, an overview of uh, some of the wallets options that people have and some, some pros and cons uh, between, let's say, cold and hot wallets to, to start out with. Yeah, sure. Um, certainly, um, wallet technology has matured significantly over the last three, four years. Um, I really look at it in two buckets, right? There's the self-custody uh, where you, the equivalent in, is, you know, it's like putting cash under your mattress, right? You're, you're in full control over it, um, which has its pros and cons. Uh, and then centralized custody, right? Like keeping your money in a bank, right? You can keep your, your crypto assets at an exchange um, and it's, it's custody, it's self-custody. And then there's combinations of that where there are wallets where you can have multi-seg and you can't move the assets until you and or um, someone you appointed um, agrees to move it, but you also have um, others who have to sign off on that move. And that may be an exchange. Uh, it may be you know some trusted third party. There's a wallet called Argent. There are many other wallets that um, use what are so-called guardians, right? So they protect the assets and multiple people have to sign off before an asset gets moved. Um, wh whatever you decide to use, it really depends on a number of things. One is what is your investment thesis? Or if you're actively trading and you need to move assets, you're probably better off keeping something in a, in a centralized um, custody. If you're looking to um, hold on to an asset for a long period of time, then maybe a cold wallet is a better option for you. Um, the challenge that I have found, and I have a lot of clients that have had issues with this, and I have individuals call me all the time where they think they've set up their cold wallet properly. They use paper wallets or they use other physical wallets. And unless you're comfortable using a cold wallet, you can make mistakes and lose all of your assets. It happens all the time. So I, I think it really is, depending on what you use, really depends on what your investment thesis is. Um, and how comfortable you are with technology, right? You may be better off, frankly, having some centralized entity control your assets. I think we'll get to the point where um, it's not just the exchange that are holding these assets. We will see large financial institutions and banks and you know, trusted central parties that are controlling these assets. That's coming soon. 
I think custody is going to be a huge business for financial institutions. And so, um, you know, we may not need and it may not be desirable to maintain assets in cold wallets. So, Howard, on the custody portion, where have you seen uh, uh, things move in that direction towards institutional custody? Is that uh, an area that that has come across for you? And do you see that uh, starting to integrate with the state planning that's out there because of this complex new asset? I'm, I mean, it's it's starting to, but then you've got always the, the pluses and minuses of it. I mean, uh, with institutional, you've always got the risk of hacking. Uh, you've always got the risk of delay on your transfers. Uh, you've got the uh, risk of multiple signatures, obviously, of you know others out there that could potentially access it. Uh, one of the things I think that's really kind of uh, moving in the right direction is, uh, I guess, what is being known as the dead man switch. Uh, we're out there that they're going to basically uh, contact you every so often, and you have to respond. And if you don't respond after, you know, three different tries, let's say, then they assume that you're deceased, and then they're going to follow a specific set of instructions in terms of where your uh, currency winds up. Uh, so that that, I think, might be a little bit more secure than some of the other things out there. So it's consistently evolving, and we're just you know, trying to see what the next iteration is going to be. Very interesting in the dead man switch and, and, and areas that are uh, that are looking at that. Are there maybe other types of structuring, whether it's through uh, SPVs or other things to come into play as people are looking at this or uh, what else are you, are you trying to, uh, are you seeing out there, Howard? Well, I mean, to me, from both a risk management standpoint, as well as just ease of administration, we almost always use special purpose entities. Uh, and that can come in a lot of different forms. It can come through the form of international entities, such as international trust or international limited liability companies or some combination thereof. Or it can come through the form of domestic entities, such as, again, uh, domestic trust limited liability companies or combinations. Uh, so we feel like that that really checks a lot of boxes. Uh, it really you know, solidifies and centralizes it from an administration slash succession standpoint. And then let's don't forget that this is, again, property that's subject to creditors. And so to the extent that we can mitigate risk and put a circle of protection around these assets, which uh, you know, are becoming very, very valuable assets, uh, then a lot of things can really you know, happen from that standpoint. So really, the special purpose entities are almost a given in my world uh, dealing with uh, crypto at a certain level. Thanks, Howard. Let's uh, switch gears and talk about family offices and investing into this area. I think we've kind of uh, touched on this topic a, a bit through our conversation, Joe. But you know, from your perspective, you know, you've certainly been in, a technologist and the pr person that's been the, in the industry before uh, you came into this. Where have you seen that drawn into new investment uh, opportunities? And I know you mentioned the the killer app, but there, there's got to be other things too, as family offices and others or investors are considering this uh, this area. Yeah, uh, Edward, there's um, 
there's all sorts of opportunities. You know, as you know, they started out with, you know, tokens and there's the opportunity to invest in individual projects, but the, um, the level of creativity and innovation around some of these financial assets is really astounding. I'll give you a specific example. Um, Polkadot, which is a uh, smart contract platform, um, is essentially doing what they're calling uh, parachain lease auctions. And so um, what parachains are is they essentially allow other projects, use case specific projects to run and sit on top of the Polkadot blockchain. And um, the way these auctions work is um, basically your project, you bid on the auction and the way you win the auction is um, you have the most amount of DOT, which is the Polkadot um, crypt cryptocurrency, locked in a smart contract for a certain period of time um, in support of your project. Uh, and in return for that, let's so if you're let's say you're an investor and you own DOT, you can lock it up in, in a uh, Polkadot smart contract. Uh, and in return, you earn, you're, you essentially stake your DOT, you earn um, the native currency of the project that you're supporting. Um, and so it's an interesting way for um, someone to put Polkadot or, a, you know, or any other cryptocurrency to use by staking and essentially earning another, another currency. That's one example of the many, many complicated structures that are, that are, that are, we're starting to see. Um, but I think keeping an eye out for those types of opportunities is certainly a, an investment opportunity for, um, you know, for family offices. I'll, I'll add this one thing. I think the challenge that um, certainly U.S. family offices are going to find we're seeing in our clients is because of the regulatory concerns in the U.S., a lot of these projects are offshore uh, and they don't want U.S. money. Right? And so um, it's sometimes a challenge for U.S. investors to invest in these projects because they're, all, you know, they're outside the U.S. So that is definitely a, um, there's opportunity, but that is definitely one of the challenges for U.S. investor money. So Adrian, Joe talked about the challenges of, you know, on, on that front, what about other elements of an, analyzing opportunities, you know, knowing something, knowing and finding out if you've got something worth it as, as you're look, as you're evaluating a investment opportunity, how, how have you seen clients do a good job in that space? Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there's something to be said for um, caution, right? There's a bleeding ledge, bleeding edge of technology where there's a there's a first mover that comes into space that you know you see a lot of um, very novel developments in this space like decentralized autonomous organizations, um, which make my little lawyer brain hurt because I don't it's not a corporation it's not a trust it's it's a bunch of computer protocols. Uh, claiming not to have any ownership. Um, and you know, it's not the first thing in the world that, you know, like a, like a trust or a reciprocal indemnity or things like that, where they, they don't have clear ownership. Um, but there's a lot of things that are very novel and very unique and haven't really been tested. And so that's, you know, one aspect of it. If you look at any of these assets, you can see on different platforms, the market cap, the trading volume, uh, and just like stocks, if you're playing in the penny stocks, uh, it's thinly capitalized, there's low volatility or low trading numbers. Um, that just sort of affects your ability to trade in and out of the asset. Similarly with a lot of these assets where you'd be looking at it and thinking, you know, it's a top five token, it, it's, it's uh, uh, Solana or it's uh, Avalanche or something. Um, that seems like plausible, but then, you know, Ripple was the top five 
uh, token and is currently uh, not accessible in many places in the United States due to an ongoing SEC lawsuit. So it, it's, um, it's, sort of, it's sort of like, as I said at the beginning, buyer beware. Um, but I think there's, there's a lot of opportunity, obviously, and um, people are very interested in the sector. One thing, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say from the wealth planning standpoint, one of the things that we're starting to see get a little bit of attention and some traction is private placement life insurance uh, funded with crypto, which I think has some interesting uh, connotations because of the, you know, inefficiency from a tax standpoint of investing in crypto. If you can basically find a way to invest through private placement life insurance, again, it might check a lot of boxes. It's uh, very interesting, Howard. It's probably subject for a whole whole other podcast to, to talk about that. Yeah. Um, so let's get to a couple of questions. I know we're going to probably run over time. Uh, so folks that have to drop at, at two o'clock uh, Eastern, uh, don't worry, this is recorded. So if you want the last part of it, I, I just don't want to shortchange us on any of the time that's here. And then we'll, we'll post this that, that that's on there. But uh, jump into a couple of questions here. Uh, Joe, on, on this first one, uh, is Web3 uh, versus Web2.0 and all the things that people have been talking about uh, in the future of this, where do you see that come across and where, where, where are you thinking in that space? Um, in terms of where, where Web3.0 is going to go? Right. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, I mentioned it earlier about um, about e-commerce. I think that this changes the way we we do business. Um, you know, I think that um, if you look at the complexity, for example, of a real estate transaction and all of the parties that are involved uh, and all of the paperwork that's involved, because you need to, you've got one lending bank that's getting paid off and a and another another bank that's coming in, and then you have the title company, and then you have the buyers and the sellers. You have all these parties that need. Um, that you need all this information um, at the same time for closing, but everybody has it in their own sort of siloed information, siloed databases. Um, I think you look at a transaction like that and use something like an NFT um, where you've got trusted information that's locked in and validated and or verified by, you know, a group of interested parties. I think it changes the way we do business and just creates an enormous amount of efficiencies that are lacking in processes that have been around for, you know, for for decades and decades, right? It it really upends a lot of what we do in banking and in real estate, and I think that's really where um, Web 3.0 changes what we do. Again, you know, it's all about sort of de- democratizing information and making it available at the right time uh, instead of being in siloed, you know, in paper and in individual databases. Yeah, and I think you know. I've been involved, like many folks on this call, with crypto for a long time. Um, I bought crypto when it was I bought Bitcoin when it was four hundred dollars. Um, I didn't buy enough, and I sold it too early. Um, but uh, the the point is that even like five or six years ago, the ideal the 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 vision of these um, at the, this asset class was that it would be um, it would be trustless, uh, it would be immutable, that you wouldn't need middlemen, you wouldn't need intermediaries. And so there was this utopian ideal that um, banks, broker dealers, um, exchanges, um, custodians, third-party nav calculators, all these intermediaries that charge 
you know, pennies or, or fraction ticket prices, they would all be gone because the market would be completely democratized. That went a little haywire in 2017. And, and there's obviously what we have now is, you know, $100 billion public company like Coinbase, um, uh, FTX, uh, major market players that guess what are doing effectively securities industry like functions in sometimes regulated ways. So the, the market has, has recreated in the upside down, like from Stranger Things, they recreated the securities industry in this sort of traditional crypto world. But what we're seeing now with Web 3.0 and things like DeFi and DAOs is that, that utopian ideal coming back, which is why do we need any of these intermediaries, right? And obviously the prudential regulatory stuffy old lawyer would say, well, you need investor protection, you need to keep criminals out of the network, you need to keep fraud to a, you know, a bare minimum and people, people need to be sanctioned and punished. Uh, and so there's, there's not a lot of enforcement mechanism in these uh, systems um, because people are moving so fast. But now, now that's, you're back to sort of what I think is sort of the original ideal, which is, as Joe said at the top of this, the democratizing of all of these institutions and, and not just finance, but voting, and art and um, you know uh, other types of transactions. Yeah, let, so, let me just add, can I just please, add one, one last please. point to that? So um, I, I like to think about Web 3.0 as something that we really can't even imagine yet. And here's the analogy I give. Um, we, we, we wouldn't have Uber and Airbnb. We couldn't have that until we had the internet, until we had the cell phone, until we had an app ecosystem. And then we've got all these great applications on top of it. Blockchain and even DeFi is really the foundation. It's like the internet. There are layers and layers of innovation that are going to be built on top of this. That's going to open up all kinds of opportunities that we, we probably can't even imagine. So I think Web 3.0, we're building the foundation for it. Where it goes, um, I think there's really an unlimited opportunity for us to, to do things that we've never done before. Uh, thanks, Joe. Rich, in terms of uh, on the tax side, uh, with capital gains uh, and, and others from crypto, have you seen folks use and put that to use in, in opportunity zones and, and other uh, vehicles like that? You know, that's a good idea. I mean, I haven't seen it, it used, but I wouldn't be surprised if, um, you know, people are, are thinking about it or doing it um, because, you know, it's any, anytime you do a transaction in a virtual currency, uh, exchange it for other property or sell it, you want to, um, you know, you're, you're going to have a large, um, you know, tax bill if, if the, the property gets appreciated. So, the qualified opportunity zone allows you to reinvest your capital gains, um, you know, into these funds, which um, you know operate certain qualified businesses in you know designated areas. And if you keep the um, your funds in the fund for a certain period of time, you can defer paying capital gains tax, and you can reduce the um, ultimate tax bill. Um, and so it is, it is quite a tax advantage, you know, uh, strategy when you have realized capital gains. So I think that would be a good idea to consider. <clears throat> so uh, thanks, Rich. Uh, Howard, what about Gratz uh, and crypto uh, on the Grat front? What, what have you seen, uh, what have you seen in, in, in that space? 
grats are really a kind of a perfect tool because they're designed to handle volatility uh, on the upside, which obviously is what we're all kind of hoping uh, we're going to get out of our investments. Uh, so grats are a great tool. Now, unfortunately, with grats, you can only skip one generation. So I can just move it from matriarch down to child. But if I do a sale to an intentionally defective trust, I can basically set it up uh, for 365 years in a lot of places up to uh, perpetuity in other jurisdictions. So all this just to say that a grad sell to an intentionally defective trust, anything that allows us to kind of get it out of the wealth transfer system is great planning because right now uh, our AFR rate is about 1% and compare that to the 400% gain we've seen on crypto, it's not a real rocket scientist kind of move to try to move it across the line. Okay. So I know we've got a lot more questions to come through, but I, I want to be respectful of everyone's time today. So we'll do a quick wrap up here. And if there are additional questions, do email us, email any of the panelists directly, and we'll give more contact information as part of this as well. Uh, kind of to wrap us up, I wanted to go around the horn and talk about lessons learned from the time that you got started in this space uh, to today. What's the one thing that you wish you had known? You can't say that I wish I had invested more. That doesn't count. That's what everybody would say. Uh, totally. But but uh, that you wish you had known when you had uh, started uh, looking at, at blockchain in general. Joe, let's start with you. Yeah, I, I think by far it's... Um my realization that it's still early days. And, and I, I said that in 2017, and now, you know, we see what's happening in the market, um, certainly with Bitcoin and Ether at all time highs. And what I'm seeing with my clients and in, in th the maturity of the technology. Um, but what I got wrong in 2017 is that I didn't realize how early it actually was, because we are still very early right now. And it's a tremendous opportunity uh, for investors in this space, because it's really, I mean, we've got a long way to go. We're still building the pipes. Uh, and I think it's a really exciting time to be here. Thank, thanks, Joe. Rich? Uh, yeah, no, similarly, I, I think that uh, when I first started getting involved, uh, at least in the in giving advice, I thought, um, you know, there's worked on a lot of initial coin offerings. That seemed to be, you know, everyone was doing it so much, uh, money was being raised and I, I feel like the, the there's been a lot of shifts over time you know similar to that a lot of trends what what are people uh really using it for and it's it's kind of um exciting and uh, you know to see what will happen and I feel like you know it's, it's very difficult to predict um you know what's what re really will uh, stick around <laughs> thanks Rich Adrian your lesson learned yeah I mean I think there's despite all my you know precautionary doom and gloom type comments. I agree with Joe, it is very early days. And if I think back to like four or five, six years ago, um, I think that many institutions um, should have been moving faster and thinking about this more seriously um, because it was uh, an asset class that in many ways, and it still is that institutional investors can't really touch. Um, and I think it's, it's, um, it's nothing like, it is not, as they say, it's not rocket science. Um, and I think there's a, um, a realization event once you sort of get into these issues. You know, Joe and I met with a client the other day who had the aha moment uh, about a particular type of asset and token that uh, was 
you know, has a real utility in the real world. Um, and so you, you know, you learn, the more you learn, the more you get into it, the more you see real potential. And so um, it's very unfamiliar and difficult to understand at first. Um, but once you get through it, you'll have that aha moment. So I think it's worth spending the time on. And Howard. I guess in my world, uh, the fact that uh, planning sooner rather than later is imperative. I've got people now coming to me with tens of millions of dollars in crypto, and I just wish that they'd come to me several years before so we could have set something up to really take that into account. So again, I can't stress enough that you really, on my side of the world, have to plan immediately versus waiting until that event does happen and it's outside your control. Well, thank you, Howard, and, and thank you, Joe, Rich, and Adrian, and all of you uh, for listening in today. We had a lot of interesting themes, including flexibility, uh, that balance between innovation and, and, and being uh, uh, smart on the regulatory front and all the protections that are there, in, things on access and making sure uh, that you have that built into whatever things that you're looking at uh, on this front. And you can see from our perspective, uh, it's a team sport at Denton's when we look at this and any other kind of problems. So we try to bring in a very multidisciplinary, multi-geography and multi-specialty uh, group to these issues. So whether you're an entrepreneur or an investor in this space, do give us a shout. Uh, you've got our email address as you've got contact information here, but uh, truly appreciate everybody joining and for all the questions and everyone's time today. So thank you and have a good one.